As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to turn to Romans in chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, please. I want to begin with verse 7 and read through um, chapter 8 and verse 4. So Romans chapter 7, please. After finding that, uh, look on the screen or in your bulletin and you'll find a prayer of illumination, a prayer, one of them that we pray to help us as we come to the scripture. We know that um, we need God's spirit to help us and to shine, if you will, upon his word in such a way that it enters not just our minds but our hearts. So let's pray together. Almighty and gracious Father, since our whole salvation stands in our knowledge of your holy word, strengthen us now by your Holy Spirit that our hearts may be set free from all worldly thoughts and attachments of the flesh so that we may hear and receive that same word and recognizing your gracious will for us, may love and serve you with earnest delight, praising and glorifying you in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So Romans in chapter seven, in verse seven, this is the word of the Lord. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is is, is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, 
weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, as I confessed to some on Wednesday night when we were gathered, I, I mentioned that I had thought about skipping Romans 7 since, you know, counting today, my time up here is like uh, T minus 3 and counting. So I'll be, only have three sermons left. So I thought, well, I would spend them on Romans 8. But then a funny thing happened to me on the way to Romans 8. I read Romans 7. And I thought, I can't get to Romans 8 without trudging through Romans 7. Paul didn't. So I should follow his lead. So I'm taking up this piece in Romans 7 this morning on my way next week and the next to Romans 8. But I want to set it, uh, set it up like this. I want us to see the theme of it and then work from that. And the theme of Romans 7 is Paul's dealing with the place of the law in the life of the believer. What's the place of the law in the, in the life of a believer, either bringing us to faith or in faith? So what's the role of the law now in bringing us to faith? And that question really has been really building all along. For instance, in chapter 3 and verse 20, we, lear- we learned this about our relationship with the law. Paul writes, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so we learned right away that the law can't bring justification. That is to say, we can't obey it. We can't obey it in order to be justified, in order for God to accept us. Uh, All the law can do is reveal our sin, right? All the law can do is reveal our sin. It can't bring this justification. And then we read in chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul had discussed the law uh, between 3.20 and 6.14, but we don't have time to go through every piece. But in verse 14, he writes, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And he's told us that we've died to sin. In Christ, in union with Christ, we we died to sin. When he died, we died. Therefore, the penalty for sin was, was taken by him for us, and thus we receive it because we're in him. We belong to him as believers in Christ. So so we get that. So we're under this grace that brings redemption. He paid the price to free us from the penalty and even the dominion of sin. And so we're no longer under sin. In that sense, we're under grace, the very grace that brings redemption and this propitiation that uh, satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf. So we're under grace. But what does he mean that we're no longer under law? Well, we're no no longer under the condemnation of the law. When the law reveals our sin, it it brings then this judgment, this condemnation. But what we find when we we read in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, in uh, verse 56, we read that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But, But since we've died to sin, then the law's power to condemn us is taken away. So we're no longer under law, but under grace. Sin no longer has this rule in our lives, this dominion 
over us. And then when we get into chapter 7, Paul's going to write about the law again. No, I didn't read this a moment ago, but I'll read it now in verse 4 of chapter 7. Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That is, in Christ's death, we've died to the law. It's condemnation. So that you may belong to another, to him, that is Christ, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now that's, if I had four Sundays, I would take up that verse, but I don't. But, but, but the, 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 that verse is packed. And um, it tells us that we've died to the law because of the death of Christ so that we can now belong to him. We're freed from the law and its condemnation. And now we belong to Christ. And here's the reason for that that we may bear fruit for God, that is, be obedient. Now, how do we know what to obey? Well, the only way we know what to obey is through the law of God. It reveals the righteousness and the holiness of God. And so we, uh, we now are to bear this fruit for God. And then Paul writes, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. See, the law held us captive because of its judgment. But now we've been released from that judgment because of the work of Christ and our faith in him so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. And so there, all of a sudden, Paul is hinting at what's gonna come in Romans 8 when he's gonna speak to us about the Holy Spirit. See, the law can't bring justification. The law is a mirror, if you will. It can point out our sin, but it can't do anything about it because we can't obey it. The, the law is like a, uh, this, this mirror, if you will, that, that shows, if we look into it, that our face might have dirt on it, but it can't clean us. We need soap and water for that. So something else needs to come. Well, Christ comes, and he breaks the power of sin and thus the condemnation of the law. But now the question is, what are we to do? So verse 7 then asks this question. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? And Paul says, no, that's ridiculous. It isn't sin at all. He says, listen, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't know my sin. And if I wouldn't know my sin and my inabilities, I would have never gone to Christ. So he says, no, the, the law isn't sin at all. He says, for I would not have known what, is, what it is to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. Now, why exactly he chose covet, I don't know. But you'll notice that the pronouns used in this section, in fact, throughout this, the rest of this chapter, are all personal ones, and all I's, or me's, or my's. So it's about Paul. Paul seems to be laying out his own life. And, and the verb tenses, I know you're all into verb tenses, but verb tenses in these verses from verse 7 to 13 are, are primarily in the past tense. So Paul's speaking about something in the past for him. And so he's saying, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. And so somehow this coveting must have really been significant in his life of all the commandments. Maybe because the first nine you can kind of do in an external kind of way, and kind of check them off. I went to, I worshiped, you know, and there weren't any idols there, and, and I didn't say anything bad about God, and, and, and I, you know, I observed the Sabbath, as I understand, I didn't do anything on the Sabbath I shouldn't do, and all the others and so forth. But when you get to coveting, that kind of gets inside. 
Coveting deals with our desires. In fact, at this point, at our, uh, of our uh, idolatrous desires. You see, desires in and of themselves aren't bad to want something. But when our wants take the place of God, that if these wants are not fulfilled, then we have no life. And they take the place of God. Then that's an idolatrous desire that's this coveting. Coveting says, these are all the things I want. These are all the things I must have. And if God, you don't provide them for me, then I'll skip over you and I'll find some other way to get them. And so Paul even said, notice how he puts it. He said, but sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment produced uh, in me all kinds of covenant, covetousness. He says, you know, my sin seized this law and it said, don't covet. And I said, why not? I want all these things. My neighbor has all these things. Why shouldn't I have all these things? My neighbors know better than I am. And so God, I should have all these things. And again, if you don't provide them, then I'll skip over you and I'll go after them myself. And so what Paul actually realized is this law about coveting stirred up in him, not godliness, but it stirred up in him more sin. So much so that he realized his own depravity. He realized, I'm worse than I ever thought I was. Now, before he really contemplated all this, he was fine. And then when he contemplated all of this, when the law really came home to him in his heart, uh, he realized his own sin. So verse 10, the very commandment to promise life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Then verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin in me, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And he said, all the law did was just reveal to me my own depravity, my own sin. It was worse than I ever could have imagined. But then a funny thing happens in verse 14. Funny in the sense that verb tenses change. Paul goes from past to present, except for one, which is future. And so it's as if there's a transition here in Paul's own life and his own thinking. Still the same personal pronoun, still the I and the my and the me, but but, but now it's in the present tense and, and, and one future no longer in the past. So you get the sense that he was talking before about his past life, that is before he came to faith, and now sin had its work in him by the Spirit, then gave, he was able uh, to, to, to receive it and believe and be justified. But now in verse 14, you get the sense that he's talking about the, the here and now, at least the here and now in his own life. But I have to tell you before I go on, this is probably one of the most debated passages throughout the centuries. <laughs> in all of the scriptures. Um, In fact, one commentator put it like this. He said, probably Paul's in glory right now saying, oh, wretched man that I am, free me from all these commentators. Uh, Because through the centuries there have been views, uh, even St. Augustine changed his view a couple of times throughout the course of his life. Um, 
and, and so others as well. Because some say that this really is Paul the believer, that Paul is expressing what it means to be a, a, a mature Christian. He doesn't, it isn't saying everything there is to say about being a mature Christian, but what he's saying about when a mature Christian comes face to face with the law, this is what he feels, this is what he thinks of himself and about Christ. Others say, no, 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 couldn't be, must be Paul, a backslidden Christian. Or, or perhaps it's Paul before he was a Christian. I know the present tense, but Paul's probably just sort of using that as kind of a prophetic presence or something like that. And, and so perhaps it's, it's Paul before he became a Christian. Or, or perhaps it's, a, it's a, an Old Testament uh, Jew who comes in face to face with the law and is going through this time of conviction concerning the law. Or, or maybe it's just Paul's description of how someone comes to faith. And, and, and those views are, very, are held honestly because there's some things in this passage that only a, only a believer could say. For instance, in verse 15, he says that he hates his sin and he, he doesn't want to do it. Well, you know how that feels, right? Believers know that. They know their sin. Unbelievers are quite happy to continue to sin. Uh, verse 16, he agrees with the law that it's good. That isn't something an unbeliever would say, but something a believer would say. Verse 17, he has a realization of indwelling sin, something that a believer knows and admits, not something that an unbeliever knows or admits. Verse 18, he has the desire to do what is right according to God's law. Verse 21, he wants to do what is right. And then verse 22, he delights in the law of God. Those are all things a believer would say, unlikely that an unbeliever would say. But yet, there's points in this passage for instance, in verse 14, where Paul says, uh, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. Well, in chapter 6, he said, we're no longer slaves of sin. So now he says, he's of the flesh, sold uh, under sin. It doesn't sound like what Paul would say. Or verse 18, he says, that, he says I know nothing good dwells in me. And you want to shake Paul and say, but don't you know, as a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. How can you say nothing good dwells in me? Um, but then he goes on to qualify by saying, in my flesh. And so you get the sense that Paul knows that though we've been delivered from the penalty and even the dominion of sin still, this sin resides in us, this flesh, this sinfulness, this sinful nature. Then in verse 23, he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within me. Again, it feels like this contradiction in Paul's own life. And I think that's exactly what he wants us to see as believers. There is this contradiction. Martin Luther put it like this. I won't quote his Latin, but the translation is, he says that we are simultaneously, or at the same time, simultaneously, both righteous and sinners. We're righteous because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, given to us. We read that in the Confession of Faith from the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. His righteousness is imputed to us so that in the sight of God, he declares us to be righteous. Not our own righteousness, but again, as Luther would say, an alien righteousness. This righteousness with which we're clothed, the righteousness of Christ. But at the same time, 
We know this indwelling sin. We know this residing sin in our lives. It may no longer reign, but we know its effects in our lives, that it resides in us. So how do we, how do we really understand then these verses? What's interesting, if you track with Paul through some of his writings, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul describes himself as the least of the apostles. Then later on, a few years later, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he describes himself as the least of all the saints, the least of all Christians. But then when he gets to 1 Timothy, which is nearing the end of his life, he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. It wasn't hyperbole in Paul's mind. So he understood himself. Now again, that isn't everything that was true of Paul. He would say, I'm the chief of all sinners, and then he no doubt would add, saved by grace. But still, it seems that the older he got, the self-identity, he saw his sin even, even more, you see. John Murray, who was a professor at Westminster Seminary in the middle of the last century, put it like this. He says, there must be a constant and increasing appreciation that though sin still remains, it does not have the mastery. There's a total difference between remaining sin and reigning sin. The regenerate, or the believer, in conflict with sin, and the unregenerate, the unbeliever, complacent to sin. It's one thing for sin to live in us. It's another for it it's another for us to live in sin. Then Samuel Bolton, a 17th century uh, Puritan author, writes, believers still have the presence of sin, nay, the stirrings and workings of corruption. These make us to have many a sad heart and wet eye. Yet Christ has thus far freed us from sin. It shall no longer have dominion. There may be turbulence, but not the prevalence of sin. Sin may get into the throne of the heart and play the tyrant in this or that particular act of sin, but it shall never uh, more be as king there. This sense. Because one of the big differences between Paul in the past, Paul in the present, is that in the past, the law stirred up more sin. And in the present, the law continues to reveal sin but it stirs up up confession and repentance. It stirs up, I see the law and it's good. I see my sin. I don't do what I want to do. That's confession. That's awareness. That's Holy Spirit. That's life in me, you see. And then, of course, he gets to the end, oh, wretched man that I am, who who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus. Praise be Jesus. He is my deliverer from this body of death. So we ask the question then, what's the role of the law in our sanctification? We talked about justification. We know its role is to lead us to Christ so that we can be forgiven our sins and receive the righteousness of Christ. Now, once we're in Christ, what's the role of the law now? The same. It's exactly the same as it was before. 
the rule of the law and our sanctification being made holy in our actual lives is to reveal our sin, but it still can't sanctify us. The law can't justify us and it can't sanctify us. It simply plays the role of revealing to us the holiness and the righteousness and the demands of God in our lives. All that can save us is the work of Christ. All that can sanctify us is Christ in us. The hope of glory is spirit within us. So you see what, what, what Paul is laying out here. And again, it's not everything that's true in Paul's life. He doesn't walk around every day saying, oh, wretched man that I am, oh, wretched man that I am. But, but it's, it's true when he faces the law. When he faces the law, he sees his sinfulness. And he, he doesn't even understand his own actions. He knows that he's died to the law. He knows that the work of Christ broke the dominion, the rule of sin in our lives, and yet he still sees it because he still knows this sin in him. For I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good, so it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's not an excuse. Paul's just realizing I know the work of Christ in me to give me a new heart that I am a new creature in him. Yet still, between now and the time Christ returns, Lord, I see him and my death, this sin still dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in this sinful nature of mine, my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I serve the Lord of God with my mind. I know what's right to do, but in my flesh, oh, so often I serve the law of sin. It's the way it is with us, you see. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more grateful we are to him as we see him, as he reveals himself to us, as we learn of him. You know, when you first become a Christian, you may think there's no way I could be more grateful to God than I am today. No way that I could love Jesus more. But yet, if you've been walking with him for any time at all, you look back and you go, that was a really naive statement. Because he's shown me so much more of himself in these years that I've walked with him. He was with me at that dark night of the soul when either by circumstance or by by my own heart, I, I was in great despair. And yet, yet still he was with me. And, and now I'm even more grateful than I've ever been to him. And I love him even more. And yet at the same time that I see his goodness and his righteousness and his holiness and his faithfulness to me, even more I realize how I should be towards him. And yet I see my feelings even more closely than ever. 
I love weddings, you know, I do weddings, we do weddings. I always love to look at the bride and the groom and I know what they're thinking. They're thinking, I couldn't love you any more than I love you today. And that's just not true. Because over time, hopefully, as they live together and love one another, they'll find so much more to love. No doubt, after 20 years or 30 years or 40 or 50, he'll look at his, his wife and think, you have been with me through all of my difficulties and all of my failings and all of my sicknesses and, and all of my confusions, and yet still here you are loving me. I love you so much more today than I ever did. And she'll look at him and she'll say, you've been such a, a wonderful protector and provider over all these years and, and, and all my fears you've helped to dissipate and you've taught me of Christ and all of these things. I love you so much more today than I ever did. And that should be true, you see, as we, as we grow in our, our love and, and know each other. And yet at the same time, you'll look at her and say, but I know all the times I've failed you. I never wanted to, but I, but I know all the times I've failed you. And she'll look at him and she'll say, I know all the times that I've failed you and I'm, I'm so sorry. In fact, increasingly as a believer in a marriage, and as a believer, we'll, we'll become increasingly sensitive to our sin, you see. And as, even as, as God gets bigger and his grace grows, still, 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 our awareness of our sin will grow as well. And we'll understand these, these, words, of, these words of Paul. But the difference is, As we come to the law, it will no longer stir up more sin. It will stir up repentance and confession. It will stir in us a desire to follow after him. But it's still, the law can't help us do it. It can point it out. And that's why Paul's going to go on. Notice in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. You see, the law came to our, our flesh and it couldn't save us because of the weakness, because of the sinfulness of our flesh. And so God did it. He did it in Jesus. Jesus came and by the, the next line is ordered in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so Jesus took the righteous requirements of the law, the penalty of it, and also its demands for obedience. And he did all of that for us that we may be forgiven and receive his righteousness. But even this, this is what Paul will develop in chapter eight, but even this, that we too might obey. And how do we do that? By the power of the Spirit at work in us. Power of the Spirit at work in us. So just like the law can't justify, it can't sanctify, but it can reveal our sin. And it could send us again to Christ for his spirit to help us. It's a great story in uh, John Bunyan's allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, chapter 24. It's called A Dusty Parlor. Now you know this allegory is about Christian who's the Christian, and a number of other people that he walks, he finds on his way to the celestial city. One of them is interpreter, so you get the impression that he's going to interpret something for Christian. 
So the story goes like this. That interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust because never swept. Uh, The witch, after he had received a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now when he began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about that Christian had almost therewith been choked. Then the interpreter said to a damsel that stood by, bring hither water and sprinkle the room. The witch, when she had done, it was swept and cleansed with pleasure. So you get the picture. It's a dusty room, really dusty. Uh, A guy comes in with a broom, sweeps it up, and the dust goes everywhere. But then a young woman comes in, sprinkles water everywhere, and sweeps up the dust. And the dust doesn't fly, but yet it's cleansed. Then Christian said, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this parlor is the heart of man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his sin and his inward corruptions that has defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law, but she that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. See, the law just stirs it up. Dust goes everywhere, chokes us out. But the gospel is it. The gospel comes and cleanses. First began to sweep. The dust did fly about that the room by him could not be cleansed, but that you were almost choked therewith. This was to show you that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, does revive, put strength into it, and increase it in the soul, even as it does to discover and to forbid it, for it does not give power to subdue. But again, as you saw, the damsel sprinkle the the room with water upon which it was cleansed with pleasure. This is to show you that when the gospel comes in, the sweet and precious influences thereof to the heart. Then I say, even as you saw the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued and the soul made clean through the faith of it and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. Some of you may remember, some of you don't, in the life of our church, a man by the name of Jerry Bridges who um, preached each year here for more than 20 years. Uh, and was a dear friend And often when he was here and often when we would speak on the phone, he would leave us and leave me with the expression and say, Bill, preach the gospel to yourself every day. You've heard him say that if you were around him. And he didn't say that because he didn't think I was a Christian and I needed to hear the gospel and repent and believe. He knew that I was. And when he said it to us as a church, he he knew we were believers and, and, and he wasn't saying preach the gospel to yourself every day in such a way that you'll hear it and, and believe and be saved. But, but he said it so that we would be sanctified because the gospel not only brings justification but also sanctifies. How does it do that? Well, when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, we see the law, it breaks our hearts. We realize we can't and haven't and thus we pour ourselves into Jesus. We call upon him for his forgiveness and his righteousness to help us. But not only that, We see this law of God and we say, 
this is what pleases the heart of God. How can I do that? This is what pleases the heart of God. It doesn't stir us in us to do more sin, but now stirs in us this great desire to walk with him and to please him. And so how do we do that? Oh, we go to Christ. We, we don't skip that step. We don't say, well, here's the law, go do it. No, 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 no. That would be arrogant. That would, that would cause frustration in the end. No, 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 we acknowledge the fact that we still need Christ in this, and we need his spirit in this, you see. And we go to him to, to fill us with his spirit so that now we can walk in this newness of life. You see, the good news is that he doesn't leave us in the dust. And in that cleansing, he empowers. And in dependence upon him, by his spirit, then we live it out to be pleasing to him. If you think that you're going to be able to live a Christian life without being plagued by sin in your own life, you're mistaken. But don't stop there. Don't stop when you see it. But know the forgiveness of Jesus and the power of the Spirit to live in a way that's pleasing to him. You remember Isaiah the prophet, um, the holiest man in Jerusalem probably, at least in terms of everyone who would be asked the question, who's the holiest one among us? And there he goes into the temple or has a vision of this temple and he sees God in all of his holiness. You remember that the Lord is high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple and the angels around the temple singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. And you remember what happened to Isaiah when he saw that. Same thing that happened to Paul when he saw the law. He was undone. The falls on his face. You know what God does at that point. He takes a coal from the altar and he applies it to the lips of Isaiah because Isaiah's Isaiah's confession was, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Everything comes out of me as unclean. And he's cleansed. Then you remember what happened. He wasn't left in the dust. Got up. And what did God do? God said, go now. My power is my prophet. And that's, you see, what Paul knows. That's what we know. The law, oh yes, convicts us of our sin. We see it. We see the holiness and righteousness of God. Let's assert sin in us, but, but to move us, to desire to, to live in a way that's pleasing to him. But we know we can only do that by, by going to Christ. You see, the, the point of our Christian lives is that we're always looking to Jesus, always. We never stop at any point in any of that. And, and yes, we do feel the exposure of sin by the law. And sometimes if we're going to be fruitful, that exposure might feel as if it's crushing us to death. Because exposed is our sin. We're so full of ourselves, perhaps, or our plans, or our purposes, our strategies, even our own usefulness, and The Lord brings us to the end of all of that and we cry out, O wretched man that I am, but never stop there. But say, 
Praise be to God. Because you see, it's at that moment that we see the glory of Jesus even more in the context of our lives. At the end of the day, we may keep saying, Jesus, I've failed you, but you're a great Savior. So where my sin abounds, then your grace even more abounds to me. He still and always will be everything we need. Let's pray, Father. Continue, I pray, to show us your glory. Continue to pray, I pray, to show us your holiness, your righteousness, your goodness, your faithfulness, your truth, your love. We may be overwhelmed by the great love that you have for us but also continue to show us our sin. Continue to lead us into confession and repentance. Continue to draw us to Jesus and by the power of his spirit to live in a way that's pleasing to you. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.